Manhattan Mirror. Peter O'Shea and his family leisurely strolled along the neighborhood sidewalks in Lower Manhattan. The family was many blocks away from their Upper West Side home. Even though the O'Sheas had become quite wealthy in the last few years, they still preferred to maintain a modest lifestyle. For the past three years, Peter O'Shea has served as president of Doubleday Publishing. The publishing company had been the main source of income for the family since arriving from Chicago in 1904. However, it was now 1911, seven years later, and Peter O'Shea had money coming in from all directions. Even though they could afford a much larger home, Peter and Shannon were quite comfortable in their original Upper West Side New York brownstone. For the first time in his life, the youngest O'Shea boy was in complete control. His daughter was growing up before his eyes. Shannon was as pretty as the day they met, and he was about to open the doors to New York City's next great magazine. The Saturday afternoon streets were fairly calm compared to the weekdays. Various street vendors were selling their wares. Model T's were maneuvering in traffic. A few horse-drawn buggies were also scooting along the streets. It was 1911, and not all Americans had invested in automobiles. With so many immigrant faces dotting the O'Shea's path, Shannon felt like she was back at Hull House, working with Jane Adams. As the family approached Peter's new office, they spotted two men of African descent standing near the front door. As the O'Shea's got closer, they recognized the men as Willis Mitchell and Harris Wiggins. Both men were wearing business suits and looked out of place. Peter O'Shea wondered why each man was dressed so properly, as he was used to seeing them in work gear and carrying tools. Peter was a bit perplexed and couldn't wait to hear their explanation. Willis Mitchell and Harris Wiggins both hailed from a neighborhood in Manhattan called Harlem. Three and a half years ago, the men had left home to attend school at Tuskegee, Alabama. As students at Booker T. Washington School, Willis and Harris became master carpenters. After graduating, the two chose to take their vocational educations back home to New York City. Willis was a highly talented woodwork craftsman, and Harris was an expert at floor design and general construction. Both men could take an empty room pile of lumber, a few tools, and construct a first-class setting. When Peter got within shouting distance of Willis and Harris, he let out an Irish farm boy shout, which would have made his father smile. Shannon turned towards Peter and jokingly said, You can take the boy out of Ireland, but you can't take the Irish out of the boy. Willis and Harris turned, waved, and began walking towards the O'Shea's. The three friends shook hands while Shannon greeted both men respectfully. Claire played shy, ignoring Willis and Harris. 
Gentlemen, what are you all doing here? So late on a Saturday afternoon Why are you dressed in suits? Peter questioned Well, Mr. O'Shea, we are done It took us over five weeks We finally finished remodeling the office I have to tell you It looks good inside We completed wooden flooring Installed new wiring Repaired the damaged walls And we arranged a new office Furniture the way you wanted Mr. Roche We actually finished yesterday to come all the way back downtown today because Harris here left his wallet in the toolbox. Now we are headed uptown to the gathering in Harlem. We finally joined the NAACP. Shannon replied, Oh, you all are going to make good members. I know W.E.B. was happy to recruit a couple of Mr. Washington's protégés. My father has known W.E.B. Du Bois for 25 years. He is going to be featured in the first edition of the Manhattan Mirror. The four adults and Claire walked towards Peter's new office. Willis turned around and unlocked the door. He handed Peter the key he had used during construction. The office was perfect. The smell of fresh paint seasoned the building. The craftsmanship of the cabinets, counters, and work areas was perfect. Peter pulled back a sheet that had been tacked to the back wall. Underneath, there was a large, flat, wooden design. It was mounted to the wall and stained in a dark maple color. The words, Manhattan Mirror, were perfectly carved into the wood. Peter could not believe the fine detail and extra time that had been put into the creation. The two men explained to Peter that the wood design was a gift to the O'Shea's. You see, Mr. O'Shea, you took a big risk hiring us. We are just getting on our feet. The mirror was our first job since we got back to the city and opened our business. Every time you walk into your office, you'll see our design. Harris Wiggins explained. Gentlemen, it was my pleasure doing business with you all. You have exceeded my wildest expectations. When my staff reports to work next week, they're going to be blown away by your skills. You are truly talented men. I would recommend you to all of my contacts. Peter supportively stated. With the exchange of kind words, Willis and Harris exited the Manhattan Mirror. The two men were proud of their achievement. Both gentlemen knew that if they had chosen to stay in the South, they would have never been given such an opportunity. Even though they had returned to their hometown, thousands of other Southern Blacks had joined them by migrating to Northern cities. Like Willis and Harris, they knew that by moving, there would be many more social, employment, and educational opportunities. Peter O'Shea sat behind his new desk. He plopped his feet up 
interlocked his hands and placed them behind his head. The fond memories of his family's late night departure from their Ireland home so many years ago rushed through his mind. While Peter daydreamed of his past, Shannon walked over to the large chalkboard which Willis Mitchell had installed. She grabbed a piece of chalk and began to write. Shannon knew that her husband's new staff would be reporting to work next Wednesday, and they would need an agenda. She divided the chart in half, reporter on the left and topic on the right. Shannon laid the chalk back in the tray, blew the dust off her hands, and gave Peter a loving smack on the head. She warned her husband, We have to get going, or we are going to be late for your sister's dinner party. The O'Shea's gathered their belongings and admired the completed office one last time. When Peter opened the front door to the Manhattan Mirror, he noticed a strange man across the street. He looked vaguely familiar, but neither Peter nor Shannon recognized him. The O'Shea's turned left and began walking towards the family car. Peter frequently looked back over his shoulder as he felt quite uncomfortable because of the odd man. Each time the Manhattan Mirror's publisher looked back, there was no one to be seen. Peter O'Shea had a sneaking suspicion that his family was being followed. Before Peter really had a chance to analyze the situation, he was distracted. Without any warning, from just down the street, piercing screams filled the block. The smell of smoke suffocated the fresh air. The shattering of glass chimed through the city. New Yorkers were running towards the screams and smoke. Shannon picked up Claire, and all three O'Shea's made a rapid dash towards the scene. When they arrived, Peter O'Shea could not believe his eyes. It was the most horrific sight that he could have ever imagined. There was not a moment of hesitation from Claire's father. Once again, Peter O'Shea had to bolt into action. This time, however, Peter had no idea what he was in for. Manhattan Mirror, Part 2 The intense screams rang out for several city blocks. Blazing flames spewed from broken windows. The entire neighborhood was clouded by smoke. Shannon O'Shea covered her innocent daughter's eyes and pulled Claire towards her body. The little girl clung to her mother's waist, as if her life depended on it. Peter guided his wife and daughter towards the safe side of the street. After his family was out of harm's way, Peter joined in the rescue efforts. When he got closer to the building, he saw a sign that read, Ash Building, home of the Triangle Waste Company. Women of all ages were running everywhere. Factory workers rushed out of the 10-story building, yelling in fear, trying to escape certain death. 
Peter directed a nearby shop owner to immediately call the fire department. As he turned and moved closer to the building, a young woman crashed into him. Peter fell backwards onto the ground, quickly pounced to his feet, and looked into the young girl's eyes. She seemed okay, so he directed her towards safety. Six stories up, Peter saw two young women hanging out the window. He could barely hear them over all the noise. They were yelling at the top of their lungs. The doors are locked! The doors are locked! The doors are locked! Ah! Help! Help me! Ah! Flames and smoke engulfed the women. They inched out of the window, trying to avoid being burned or suffocated to death. Frantically, Peter rushed towards the front door. He wiggled his way inside and looked for the stairwell. To his left, he spotted the stairs. Female factory workers were continuously rushing by him. Peter made his way to the staircase and intensely propelled himself upward. With each floor he climbed, his visibility decreased. His lungs became more and more inundated with the toxic smoke. Peter eventually reached the sixth floor and dashed in what he hoped was the right direction. When Peter reached the factory door, he could hear banging and screaming. There had to be dozens of women inside. Peter grabbed the doorknob, but the heat scorched his palm and sent his hand flailing into the air. In a mad panic, the youngest O'Shea brother began kicking the door. It would not budge. Peter scanned the hallway for anything that might help knock the barrier down. There was nothing to be found. Peter backed up, ran forward, leaped into the air, and rammed his broad Irish body into the door. Despite his best efforts, it wouldn't budge. Peter sluggishly rose from the floor, disoriented and confused. Peter realized that if he ever wanted to see his family again, he must leave immediately. Peter reached the exit door and descended downstairs. He sprinted outside towards a clear view of the sixth floor window. The two women were still there. This time, they could not hold out any longer. The intense heat and blinking smoke became unbearable. In a desperate attempt at survival, each woman suddenly jumped out the window. In just a matter of seconds, two booming thuds crashed into the sidewalk. The two thuds were followed by a series of even more intense sidewalk smacks. Suddenly, bodies were flailing from above and crashing all around. The blaze had become too much for the trapped workers. Their only way out was to jump for their lives. The numbers were horrific. Peter counted at least 15 young women now lying on the sidewalk, each of whom, as a last resort, had tried to jump to safety. Rescuers had arrived on the scene trying to extinguish the fire. The inferno intensified by the second. Pete knew there was nothing more he could do. In agony, he clutched his head and sadly backed away from the scene. Shannon and Claire were safely awaiting their American hero. The family embraced with a heartfelt hug. 
the two parents began sobbing and realized they were witnessing a national tragedy. Peter and Shannon knew there was no way they would be able to make it uptown for Anna's dinner party. Disheartened, the O'Shea's turned in the opposite direction and walked back towards the Manhattan Mirror. The streets near the Mirror's office were completely empty. Everyone in the surrounding neighborhoods had gone to gaze at the fire. Peter reached into his pocket and pulled out the key that Willis Mitchell had given him. As he opened the door, the eyes of a strange man greeted his family. It was the same suspicious individual they had seen earlier. The man brandished a pistol and pushed the family towards the back of the mirror. All three O'Shea's were forced to the floor. The stranger pointed his gun and began speaking. In a serious tone, he addressed the O'Shea's. Well, years ago your father forced my family into a terrible downfall. My name is Wrigley, Richard Wrigley. I think you have heard of my dad. He ran the west side of Chicago for years until Patrick Quinn stuck his nose where it didn't belong. Peter O'Shea, I should have done away with you outside of Full House that day. I was the one who knocked you out while you were beating up my partner. Well, now I'm here to take revenge after my father was voted out of office. We Supporters turned against him. We had to give up our house and live like a bunch of dirty Irish immigrants. Now your family will suffer like mine did. <laughs> the evil Wrigley thug pulled out a ragged rope. He proceeded to tie Claire and Peter to an office support beam. Wrigley clutched Shannon by her golden blonde hair. He snarled at Claire, directing her to say goodbye to her mother. You queens destroyed my life. So now we'll call it even. Wrigley snarled. He walked over to Peter. Using the butt end of the gun, Wrigley violently smacked him in the head. Peter O'Shea's body went limp and fell over. Claire cried and whimpered for her father. Oh, Daddy! Wrigley turned to exit the mirror. The O'Shea family was about to be permanently separated. Wrigley opened the door and dragged Shannon out. He held the gun towards her back and began moving nervously down the sidewalk. Shannon O'Shea struggled slightly, but her fight was timid as she feared being shot. Don't shoot me! The vacant streets provided a backdrop for Shannon's flowing tears. Deep inside her heart, she believed her family would never be reunited. Richard Wrigley continued to firmly jam the gun into Shannon's lower back. Wrigley stopped in his tracks, opened the door of a Model T, and began to shove the beautiful Shannon inside. Shannon resisted mightily. No, the stubborn Irish girl planted her right foot on the door jamb and refused to be taken. Wrigley became visibly irritated. 
He pointed and waved his weapon. Shannon continued to rebel against the evil villain. Stop! Don't do this! As the commotion began to cause a major disturbance, Wrigley began to lose control. He squeezed Shannon's neck and pushed with even greater force than before. Again, the tough-minded mother resisted. Stop! Wrigley finally had enough. He raised his pistol high in the air, squeezed the trigger, and fired a frightening warning shot. Get in now, or the next shot will not miss. Wrigley threatened. Reluctantly, Shannon backed into the vehicle. Wrigley kicked at her legs as she was not moving fast enough for the thug. She finally reached the passenger seat, and Wrigley's plan was back on track. Wrigley opened the door wide and was nearly seated in the car. From the corner of his eye, the Chicago gangster spotted two men running from down the street directly towards him. Wrigley leaped from the car seat, pulled out his pistol, and directed it at the men. Before he could even take aim, a massive shoulder was driven into his stomach. Wrigley smashed backwards into the open car door. The second man scooped up Wrigley's gun. Shannon recognized the men as Willis Mitchell and Harris Wiggins. Willis Mitchell dragged Wrigley off the ground and ferociously shoved him against the Model T. For good measure, Harris Wiggins lifted his left leg and delivered a smacking kick directly into Wrigley's chest. Wiggins stood over the criminal and tauntingly said, That's how we do it in Harlem. Shannon O'Shea climbed from the car and embraced her two heroes from Harlem. Thank you. She turned towards her husband's office, sprinted down the street, and prayed that her family was safe. Harris Wiggins and Willis Mitchell dragged their prisoner along. When the mirror opened for business on Wednesday, there would surely be a new feature story.